If you attended church as a child, you know a familiar tune. It was one of my Sunday school favorites. It's called Deep and Wide. Perhaps you remember the lyrics. It even has hand motions. Deep and wide. Deep and wide. You notice I'm not singing it. <laughs> Can be thankful for that. Deep and wide. There's a fountain flowing. Deep and wide. I bring that up because this morning I have entitled my message, Deep and Wide. Here in Ezekiel chapter 47, we want to read the first 12 verses. Beginning in verse 1. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. For the front of the temple faced east. The water was flowing from under the right side of the temple, south of the altar. He brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gateway that faces east. And there was water running out on the right side. And when the man went out to the east with the line in his hand, he measured 1,000 cubits, and he brought me through the waters. The water came up to my ankles. Again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through the waters. The water came up to my knees. Again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through. The water now came up to my waist. Again, he measured 1,000, and it was a river that I could not cross, for the water was too deep, water in which one must swim a river that could not be crossed. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me and returned me to the bank of the river. When I returned there, along the bank of the river were very many trees on one side and the other. Then he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region, goes down into the valley and enters the sea. When it reaches the sea, its waters are healed. And it shall be that every living thing that moves, wherever the rivers go, will live. There will be a very great multitude of fish, because these waters go there, and they will be healed, and everything will live wherever the river goes. It shall be that fishermen will stand by it from Engedi to Eneglium. They will be places for spreading their nets. Their fish will be the same kinds as the fish of the great sea, exceedingly many. But its swamps and marshes will not be healed, for they will be given over to salt. Along the bank of the river on this side and that will grow all kinds of trees used for food. Their leaves will not wither, and their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month. Because their water flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for medicine. The Barnum and Bailey Circus had an exhibit called the Happy Family. A cage featured lions, tigers, panthers, all squatted around a little lamb. The fierce predators seemed at harmony with the lamb. Well, one day, P.T. Barnum was showing off his exhibit. 
Someone asked him, he said, do you ever have any problems with this strange mixture of animals? Barnum replied, oh, never, apart from replenishing the lamb every now and then, they get along just fine. So much for the happy family. As much as we would like for it to be true that everyone just gets along, in this world, it's not. Predators exist among men and among animals. But one day, Jesus will return to end this hostility that's been caused by man's sin. Jesus will usher in an age of peace. We're told in Isaiah 11, verses 6 through 9, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. What an amazing day that will be. The conflict boiling over in our world today will be a distant memory. Understand, God's redemption will not be complete until all that sin has twisted will be straightened out. It'll be restored. One day, all that sin has soiled will be cleansed of its stain. Romans 8 verse 22 puts it this way. For the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Right now, the creation groans over sin's effects. When the trees creak, when the frogs croak, they do so in a melancholy tune. All of nature knows that things are not as they should be, not as God meant for them to be. But one day, Jesus will remove the curse of sin. The Bible teaches that on a day yet future, Jesus will return. He will defeat his enemies. He will establish his kingdom in Israel and around the world. And he will launch an age of peace and prosperity that will last for a thousand years. And at that time, Jesus will roll back sin's curse on nature. The world, all its ecosystems will morph. Pollution will vanish. The oceans and the ozone will be repaired. When Jesus sits on the throne, wolf and lamb, man and beast will live as a big happy family. Once a woman bragged to her pastor that she had a one-way ticket to heaven. The pastor replied, if that's the case, you're going to miss out on a lot. I have a round-trip ticket. When we depart earth via undertaker or the rapture, it's not for the last time. We're coming again. Jude 14 tells us about Jesus' second coming. The Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. And if you know Jesus, you'll be one of this army of saints. The Bible teaches that when Jesus returns to take over this earth, he won't come alone. You and I will be by his side. We'll be commissioned to rule with him. In that day, the Lord will usher in a golden age, a Shangri-La. He'll put an end of sin and all its tragic consequences. Jesus has saved our soul, but he will also save this earth. He'll restore the polluted planet to a Garden of Eden. And you and I will help him govern. This is what Ezekiel 47 is all about. Ezekiel is foreseeing into the future. 
He sees an environmental miracle. He looks ahead to this kingdom age in the land of Israel at this future temple in Jerusalem. And he describes his vision beginning here in verse 1. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. Now whenever I read this verse, my first reaction is not a very pleasant one. In fact, I start to squirm. For there have been some occasions when we've come up to this church building and we've noticed water flowing out from under the threshold. And that is never a good thing. Once a toilet over here got stuck and overflowed. The place was flooded. Another time, the ice maker on the back hall broke and it got stuck and leaked and water was everywhere. Still another time, the gutters got clogged up and we had a few classrooms over here flooded. By the way, notice the new flooring? The musky smell is gone. Hallelujah. But my point is, water from under the threshold is not necessarily a good sign for a pastor who comes up to open the doors of the church. Not so, though, for Ezekiel. For when he sees water seeping out from under the threshold of the temple, he gets excited. You see, the Middle East is a region of the world rich in oil, but sparse in water. Any trickle is a blessing. And this is especially true in and around Jerusalem. Most Israeli cities have public fountains and pools. People gather around the water. But not so in Jerusalem. Their water is very, very scarce. Have you noticed large urban areas are almost always located on the water, on the ocean front, or maybe on a river? Babel was built on the Euphrates River. Cairo on the Nile. London on the Thames. Rome on the Tiber. You find cities up and down the mighty Mississippi. Atlanta's on the hooch. But Jerusalem has no river. In ancient times, its chief water supply was a spring. The Gihon feeds the pool of Siloam. It's a spring that bubbles up there in Jerusalem. In fact, if you go with us to Israel, you can walk with us up Hezekiah's Tunnel. And you're actually wading through the Gihon Spring. Here, the prophet Ezekiel, he sees into the future, and he sees a new subterranean spring bubbling up on the Temple Mount. It's rising from the holy place. It's flowing south of the altar. Pure, fresh spring water is rising up near the altar of God. And Ezekiel notices the further this water flows, the deeper and wider it grows. In fact, he's escorted into this stream with a tour guide. He and the guide, they go down into the flow. Ezekiel jumps in and he wades in the direction of the current. He walks a thousand cubits downstream. Now realize, a Babylonian cubit was about 21 inches. Thus, a thousand of them would be 1,750 feet or 583 yards or put in terms you men can understand, about six football fields. Ezekiel is standing in water ankle deep. He's sort of splashing with his sandals. Cool water feels good on a hot day. But then he wades another thousand cubits downstream. Now he's off the Temple Mount, 
And he's standing in the middle of the Kidron Valley. The water level is now up to his knees. He's still having fun. He's wading through the current. The stream is like a gentle brook. Ezekiel and his God then go another thousand cubits southward. He's now 3,000 cubits or a mile downstream. Now the water is up to Ezekiel's waist. He's tucked his robe up under his belt just to walk through the water now. The current is getting stronger. It's moving faster. Finally, Ezekiel moves another thousand cubits south. He finds that what was once a trickle has now become a full-fledged river. The prophet Ezekiel is now in over his head. This powerful river is too swift to swim. It's too wide to cross. Ezekiel has to get out of the water and walk along the riverbank. And there he makes another startling discovery. The water is so clean, so pure, that its banks have sprouted groves of various fruit trees. This river is a source of nourishment. It helps to spawn foliage and fruit. Verse 12 says that the leaves on these trees never wither. Their fruit never fails. These are fruit trees that never go dormant. They blossom with new fruit every month. This river makes them continually productive. Even the leaves on these trees are useful. They contain healing properties. Rather than take medicine, people at the time will just eat leaves from these trees. Imagine needing your prescription filled. Rather than going to the pharmacy, you just have to go order again off the salad bar. Ezekiel follows this river another 40 miles to its ultimate end. From a spring by the altar to a trickle in the temple to a creek through the valley, now to a river in the desert, it finally dumps its water into the Dead Sea. And there another miracle takes place. The saline depths of the salt sea are healed in spring with life. Now realize the tap water from your faucet contains 1% salt. When you go to the beach to swim in the ocean, the water there is about 7% salt. The Great Salt Lake in Utah is about 12% salt, but the Dead Sea is 33% salt. That's five times saltier than the ocean. Salt crystals form a white foam that sits on the surface of the Dead Sea. When you swim in the Dead Sea, the water is heavier than your body, which makes it impossible for you to sink. You don't even have to tread water in the Dead Sea. You can just lay down on your back and go to sleep. And if it can hold up Larry Granger, it can hold up anybody. (laughs) The salty water just kind of keeps you buoyant. And its enormous salt content, this is what makes the Dead Sea dead. Nothing can live in these waters. No animals drink from the sea. No fish swim under the surface. The Dead Sea is the ultimate dead end. Yet when the water from the temple reaches the headwaters of the Dead Sea, a healing will take place. The lethal salt gets neutralized. The river that flows from God's house purifies the sea's poisonous waters. Notice from Engedi which is today an oasis that's grown up around a spring on the northern shore, a place that we visit on our trips to Israel. 
all the way to Ineglium, which is today a dried up spot on the southeast of the Dead Sea. What was once the Dead Sea will suddenly teem with life. Fishermen on its shores will cast their nets. We're told in verse 10, their fish will be of the same kinds as the fish of the great sea, exceedingly many. The great sea is the Mediterranean. Imagine the Dead Sea becoming a fisherman's paradise. Amazing. (laughs) The same genre of fish you find today in the Mediterranean, you'll find in its waters. Fishing excursions on the Dead Sea. Notice the amazing promise in verse 9. Everything will live wherever the river goes. Did you hear that? Everything will live wherever the river goes. It's a curative tonic. Every pond, every cesspool into which this water seeps will be repaired. And this is just a little glimpse of the incredible transformations that will take place all over the world when Jesus rules the earth from his throne in Jerusalem. Hey, if Jesus is able to heal the waters of the Dead Sea, I'm sure that Yellow River cleanup will be no problem at all. The whole world will become a tropical paradise. Last week, Kathy and I, we got to go to Hawaii. Don't worry, I didn't give myself a big raise. We used up some sky miles that we'd had accumulated, and a pastor friend in Hawaii set us up with free digs. I mean, how can you beat that? And I got to tell you, Maui, it is a beautiful place. Just amazing sights wherever you turn. As a matter of fact, the church we visited, it opens up into a golf course right behind it. I mean, how's that for paradise? Ezekiel 47 is teaching us that one day there will be a little bit of heaven everywhere on earth. This planet will become a garden. And let me suggest that what we see happening in Ezekiel 47 isn't just fulfilled in the end of time. I believe it occurs any time Jesus is allowed to sit on the throne, even the throne of a person's heart. What will one day occur on planet earth can take place in the spiritual life of any person who surrenders the crown in the course of their life to Jesus. To me, the end, this end times river is actually analogous to God's influence in a Christian's life. You remember Jesus promised us in John chapter 7, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. When I surrender the reins of my life to Jesus, when I give him my whole heart, I mean give him my heart, suddenly a love, a peace, a joy, a power, an energy begins to bubble up inside me. A spiritual current of life-giving vitality flows into areas of my life that were once dry and dead. As the living water flows, transformation occurs. There's a story that's told from Joe Montana's college days at Notre Dame. The famous quarterback, he tells the story. Apparently, he took a course entitled Introduction to the New Testament. 
In fact, the class was quite popular among the football players, not because they were particularly interested in the Bible, but because its tired old professor always gave the same one-question final exam. Trace and discuss the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. Well, a good answer to that one question got you an easy A. Well, when it came time for the test, everyone was shocked when they turned over their paper and they read a different question. Offer a critical analysis of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Well, a sigh went up all across the room. No one had prepared for this question. But Joe noticed one of his linemen, he was scribbling feverishly on his paper. Later, this teammate was bragging that he'd gotten a B-plus on the test. Joe asked him how he'd answered the surprise question. The fellow said, Well, Joe, when I saw he wanted a critical analysis of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, I wrote, Who am I to criticize the words of the Master? But I do have something to say about the journeys of the Apostle Paul. And then I wrote what I had prepared. And I could say to you this morning, well, Joe, stop criticizing the master and start allowing Jesus to call the shots in your life. And when you do, a river of spiritual life and power and healing will begin to flow from deep within your heart. With the time I have left, I want to examine how this future river spoken of in Ezekiel 47 actually acts like the living water of God's Spirit that flows and transforms us. There are three points I want you to consider this morning. First, how it spreads. What it spawns, and then where it starts. Three S's for you. How it spreads, what it spawns, and where it starts. For as soon as a person surrenders their life to Jesus, as soon as you invite Him to take the helm of your heart, A spigot turns on inside. Suddenly, the life of God springs up in you and does amazing things. In fact, this morning at the end of our study, I'm going to give you an opportunity to pass God's final exam. Well, first, I want you to notice in Ezekiel 47 how this river spreads. It begins as mere seepage. It turns into a trickle then into a stream, then into a creek, then into a mighty river. In essence, it builds gradually and incrementally. It widens and deepens as it flows. As we sang as kids, there is a fountain flowing deeper and wider. When you first become a Christian and dive into the Christian life, the living water is fun. It's like a trip to the water park. It's like splashing in cool water on a hot summer's day. The word is relief. Your sins are forgiven. How cool is that? The guilt is gone. The anvil you've been lugging around rolls off your shoulders. You're given a brand new lease on life. But as you go with the flow, that euphoric experience begins to deepen and it widens. It's like Ezekiel's experience. As he waded further and further into the river, the current got stronger. Waves rolled in. They splashed up. Finally, Ezekiel was submerged in over his head. And likewise, the further you go with God, the more profound, the heavier the experience becomes. 
You see, the longer I stand at the foot of the cross, the more I realize what it cost my Lord to earn my forgiveness. An appreciation grows that grips my allegiance. I realize Jesus is not just my Savior. He's also my Lord. His ways and will are best. The longer I'm there, the more I want His influence and input to permeate more and more of my thinking. And in time, I even develop a desire to serve Him. My life begins to turn in directions that will ultimately count for Him. Take missionaries who've been to foreign places, who've made huge, enormous sacrifices to follow Jesus. And they'll confirm it didn't happen overnight. When they began with God, they had no idea where their path would take them. They were just happy to be forgiven. They got in the flow. And by faith, it carried them to places they never thought they'd go. But it's this incremental progress that causes a stumbling block for some people. For they want to start on the high dive. Have you ever met a kind of person who just wants to go and dive into the deep end of the pool? They're determined to be a spiritual giant from the start. It's a prideful attitude, really. If I can't be the greatest Christian ever, then I just won't be one. They worry that they'll be able to master this new lifestyle. The truth is, God makes us all get in the pool at the shallow end, where we can learn to swim correctly. This is why humility is the prerequisite for becoming a Christian. You begin as a Christian by dismounting from your high horse and humbling yourself. You embrace little child status. Realize when you begin anything, you do so as a beginner. Whether it's golf or cooking or stock investing or being a Christian. There's no need to be embarrassed because of it. You're just a beginner. None of us start out our Christian life with instant maturity. We were all a novice for a time. Nobody becomes a Christian in presto. He knows all the books of the Bible and can quote various scriptures and can teach Bible studies. Yes, you get in the river at once. But going deeper requires you to wade further. Ezekiel started out ankle deep. Then he found himself knee deep, then waist deep. Then he got in over his head. But the important thing was that he started. Have you started? Have you stepped into the river and began to wade deeper and further? Christian experience deepens as you go. It starts with a desire for God's forgiveness and blessing, but eventually it turns into a transformation of our character. It also widens as you go. It starts out as a personal interest for me and my needs, but eventually it broadens into a burden for others, perhaps even the whole world. Reminds me of the bank robber. He hit the same bank three times. When the police interviewed one of the tellers, they asked if she noticed anything different about the man. She answered, she said, well, yes, each time he robbed us, he seemed to be a little better dressed. (laughs) Well, obviously, the robber was gaining some momentum. He was moving forward in his chosen line of work. And that's what happens to us when we continue with God. The river gets deeper and wider. The momentum catches us. It grows stronger. 
sins that you once overlooked now begin to bother you. Your life grows purer and holier. You too become better dressed spiritually as you go. You no longer care about just yourself, but you start seeing other people's needs as well. It's amazing how the river spreads. But it's also interesting what this river spawns. In Ezekiel's vision, trees grow up along its banks and sprout fruit. There's even healing in the leaves of these trees. And when the river mixes with the stagnant waters of the Dead Sea, the river wins. It neutralizes the poison. It stimulates life. The living water allows fish to hatch and animals to drink. It becomes a source of life. What does this river spawn? In a word, it produces healing. And this is what the river of God brings to our hearts. The river of God's Spirit brings healing. I'm sure you've noticed this world is a cold and cruel place, is it not? I mean, it's a minefield armed with emotional bombshells that hurt us and harm us. Oh, the disappointments, the heartaches, the losses, the pains, the setbacks in this life. Sometimes you just wonder if the enemy has slipped in and secretly booby-trapped your life. But whatever this river of God touches, it heals. It neutralizes the acidic. The trees that are watered by this river have healing properties, even in their leaves. You remember while on earth, Jesus' ministry was characterized by numerous and incredible healings and remedies. The river flowed with healing then, and it flows with healing today. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus tells us why the Father sent him into the world. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. When the life-giving water of God begins to bubble up in your life, it slowly but steadily washes over open wounds. It neutralizes the bitterness and the hatred and the pride that has kept those wounds infected. It now irrigates irritated areas. It siphons off the emotional mucus that kept you from healing. The river of the Spirit brings healing wherever it flows and to whatever it touches. Let me just say, this is what is needed in our country today. The racial tensions that exist are eating us up. Even after all the progress that's been made politically, civil rights legislation, even the election of an African-American president, still no one trusts each other. Let me say, only Jesus can bring the healing we need. As long as we are black and white, nothing will change. We need to be a new race. A third race, the Bible calls us. We need to be new creations in Christ. This is how we need to see ourselves and each other. See, here's what happens to lost people, people without Jesus. Stuff goes on outside their lives. They trip and fall. They get slammed. They get let down. They become victimized. We live, we as Christians live in the same world. This happens to us too, but there's a difference As a Christian, stuff happens to me, but there is now stuff going on in me to encourage me. There's a river flowing that strengthens me and that 
brings me God's love and that lifts me up. I'm not a stagnant pool anymore. There is a river of spiritual life flowing into my heart and it's that river that keeps the healing and the loving flowing. If you've been hurt, even deeply so, if you've given your love to someone who then dumped you, if you've given years of hard work and productivity to a company that has now dumped you, if you have given your best efforts to an ungrateful child that sadly has now dumped you, if you just feel dumped on and rejected and pained, you need to get in the river. That's where you need to get. You need to start splashing and get baptized in God's river. Trust me, the river of God's Spirit is powerful. And this river can't be explained. It carries miracle cures. When it collides with the salty water of doubt and fear and depression and failure and hatred and prejudice, it strips sin's saltiness of its power. It answers doubts and calms fears and strengthens weaknesses and stirs up love. It cancels out the rejection of people with the overwhelming acceptance of God. It's this river. Notice again verse 11. But its swamps and marshes will not be healed. They will be given over to salt. If you've ever been to a swamp, been down in a marsh, you know that the water there just sits there. It just sits stagnant. Scum festers on the surface of stagnant water, doesn't it? Bugs and flies and mosquitoes just sort of circle over the top of the water. And if we're honest, we'll admit that there are some swampy, some marshy areas in our lives that remain sinful and poisoned and dead. Hey, we become selfish and self-serving in a relationship. Or maybe we've held on to a nasty habit Or we've harbored in our hearts an ugly bitterness. Is there an area in your life that's a spiritual swamp? It's a scummy part of your life? Do you have one that really bugs you? And it's happened for one simple reason. You have set up barriers that keep the river from flowing into that area. Levees of pride, dams of selfishness and stubbornness. You need to tear down those barriers this morning. You need to let the river flow into those swampy, marshy areas. I repeat, where the river flows, it brings healing. Do you love your sin more than you love God's healing? It's amazing, this river, Ezekiel sees in this chapter, how it spreads, what it spawns but also where it starts. Remember, Ezekiel first saw the water bubbling up where? Under the threshold of the temple, right by the altar. If the prophet had tried to jump into the river further downstream, he may have drowned. But Ezekiel took the first step of faith in the temple, right next to the altar. You see, the river of God flows through all of life. It fills up valleys, and it flows through the desert, and it dumps into the sea. But it always starts in the temple near the altar. 
And this is where each of us have to go to begin with God. We come to God on His terms, on His turf. In a sense, God will meet you anywhere. At the pool hall or at the picnic table, in the boardroom or at the boardwalk, in the factory or in the bakery. But wherever it is that God meets you, He always brings you back to one place. The beginning place, the altar. If you had actually visited the former Jerusalem temple, the altar would have been your least favorite place in the temple. You would have loved the inner courts, especially the Ark of the Covenant. The glory of God hovered over the Ark. You would have loved the glory of God. And then the table of incense, it always gave off a fragrant smell. You would have loved that. And then those golden lampstands were a work of art. You would have admired those lampstands. But the altar, man, that was the bloody place. That's where the sacrifices were offered. At the altar, you would have seen the innocent lamb bleeding as the priest grabbed its woolly neck and then slit its throat. Blood splattering everywhere. You would have heard the animal screech and then moan in agony and exhale a final guttural gasp. Nobody ever liked being taken to the altar. But in this new, still future temple, this is where the river starts, at the altar. Today, the altar of God is not an altar in some temple. It's not the front of the church, though Often we refer to it as such. No, today the altar of God is the cross of Jesus Christ. That's where the blood has been shed. That's where the price has been paid. At Calvary's cross, my sin and your sin were laid on Jesus' sinless shoulders. At His cross, Jesus paid our penalty and earned for us a permanent pardon. There's a famous photograph it was snapped by journalist George Strzok. It features three dead American soldiers on Buna Beach in New Guinea. This particular photograph has since been entitled, The Photo That Won World War II. It was taken 18 months after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And by that time, though tens of thousands of our fighting men had already died in battle, not a single photograph of a fallen American soldier had been put in print. But in September 1943, the government relented and gave in to Life Magazine's insistence. Apparently, the government sensed that the civilian commitment to the war had begun to wane and that the American public needed to be reminded of the urgency of victory. The photo made the war real, and it relit a spark in America to do all that we could to support the war effort. It became the photo that won the war. And this is why the Christian life really begins at the cross. For it's at the cross that our hearts learn to love Jesus. And learn to love other people with a sense of urgency. Here we see our need. We see every man's need at the cross. We sense our sin's severity. And we realize the depths of God's love. You see, when you put a boat in the lake, you need a ramp, don't you? You need a launching spot. 
And the same is true for us spiritually. This is why for you and me, the river begins at the altar. There's no other way. There's no other entry point. The cross is the getting in place to God's mighty river. Shun or scoff or ignore the cross of Jesus and your life will stay swampland. It will remain bland and boring and stagnant and polluted and terribly infected. If you don't begin at the altar, you'll never know the flow of God's love and healing and forgiveness. You'll never. There is a fountain flowing deep and wide. But today it flows from the wounded side of our Lord Jesus. It all starts. The healing bubbles up at the altar of the cross. If you want to go wading in the life-giving river of the Spirit of God, if you want God's influence and healing to spread deeper and wider in your life and in your world, then it starts on your knees next to the altar. All the miracles God will ever do in and through your life were paid for and originated at the cross of Jesus Christ. You'll never be gloriously over your head, drowning in God's love, if you don't come humbly to the cross. This morning, I want to offer two invitations. If you want to step into the miracle flow of God's life-giving river, I want to invite you to the cross. Maybe you've never taken that step. Maybe you've sat along the banks and you've watched others enjoy it. Maybe you've been coming and checking it out. But you've never actually stepped into the river yourself. If you want to step off the shore for the first time into the flow of this mighty miracle working river, I'm going to give you that opportunity in just a few seconds. And if you've already stepped into the river, I want to challenge you this morning to go deeper and wider. To let that river flow through you into the swampy, infected areas around you. I want you to commit this morning to tear down that pride or that stubbornness. To stop sealing off that secret area of your life. And let the river flow to that place as well. I want to challenge you to let the river flow through you to the parched world around you. For 2,000 years, God's river has brought healing wherever it flows. Today, jump in, see for yourself. And let that river flow through you. Deep and wide. Deep and wide. There's a fountain flowing deep and wide.